0: All right, so we're in Matthew chapter 26, the first 13 verses. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll look at the story. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Matthew. We um, thank you for the story that has unfolded before our eyes, uh, for the evidence that's been presented um, to the Jewish reader coming in and investigating the validity of Jesus' claim as Messiah are set forth and set before us to really authenticate that he is indeed the promised one, which means that his sacrifice was sufficient for us. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that we would grow deeper in our understanding of the significance of the cross of Christ, Father, as we prepare to take communion this day, I pray for those here uh, that maybe aren't sure where they stand with you. I pray, Father, that you would help them to reach the place of belief so that they would receive eternal life. And for those of us who have believed, Father, I pray that your word would um, penetrate deeply into our minds and our hearts, that we would be convicted that we would be encouraged, Father, that we would have a greater understanding of who you are and what you have done on our behalf. Uh, We are grateful for this day. We are grateful for this location that we can meet and study your word and worship you freely uh, without fear of any sort of persecution. It's a privilege um, that few in the world have, and so we don't take it for granted. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Matthew 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying not during the festival. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leopard, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial, of very costly perfume. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured out this perfume or poured out the perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, In the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would guide us this day, help us to understand what was said in context, help us to understand how it applies uh, to our lives today. And we ask this in Christ's good name, amen. Okay, so the first, the, the story of, of the gospel of Matthew is transitioning now. Uh, there's There's three, four, depends on how you want to count them. I'm saying there's three uh, things that I see in the first five verses that should capture our attention. The, the first phrase here, it says, when Jesus had finished these words, um, this is a phrase that has been used a number of times through the Gospel of Matthew. It's the fifth time that the author Matthew has used uh, essentially this phraseology. Um, it's, it indicates to us that he's changing directions in his writing. Uh, his writing is not chronological. It's not set out uh, sort of with a, with a timeline of how things happened. Matthew has a very specific purpose for his writing. His purpose is he's writing to the Jewish reader who doesn't know Christ as their Savior who's investigating sort of the claims of Jesus. They're expecting a Messiah. And so Matthew is writing to this Jewish reader. And so he's gone through five different sections. Um, He says, when Jesus finished these words, it really concludes a large section that began back in chapter four, verse 17, through this point, the bulk of Jesus's teaching now is done. And he's turning the page and he's moving on to the crucifixion story. Um, Some... Some have suggested that the the whole of Matthew up to this point is merely an introduction uh, to these last few chapters. Um, This chapters 26, 27, 28, we're going to be looking at until Easter, about three months, um, maybe a little less than three months. I think it's more like two months. Um, It's the jugular vein of Christianity. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is. You can take away a whole lot, but you cannot remove the crucifixion story. The crucifixion story is everything. This is where our relationship with God is based upon. Um, It it, it is everything. And so now Matthew is slowing down. His story now is going to focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And And we're told by Matthew that when Jesus had finished these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. And so the second point, the second observation, point number one is we see a transition in the story. Point number two, we see sort of the, the Passover plot, which you could probably break these into two different categories. Um, we get a timestamp in the story. Jesus says, you know, after two days, the Passover is coming. Um, without going into detail there's uh, uh, there's discussion uh, there's a debate I don't think is a is a probably the right word, but amongst scholars, not even controversy that's too harsh um, th- there's there's varying opinions uh, you, you know c- culture we're sort of set in culture, especially in the United States you know we have Easter Easter rolls around, and what do you do the Friday before Easter you celebrate Good Friday. It comes around every Friday Every Friday before Easter is Good Friday. Good Friday sort of is to, to remember, to reflect upon um, the, the death of Christ. Now, all, the way we do our days is very different than how the Jews do their days, even, even to this day. If you go to Genesis, you'll see that a day started at, at the evening, and then there was morning, day one. Evening, morning, day two. And so... Basically from a Jewish mindset right now, we're, we're basically concluding Sunday and, and later this afternoon, we're going to start Monday. Um, Passover is a high holy day, which means they can sort of double up days. And I don't, I don't really want to dabble in the waters, but there's, there's discussion whether it was Jesus crucified on a Friday. Was he crucified on a Thursday? Was he crucified on a Wednesday? Um, I believe by our calendar he was probably crucified on like a Thursday. Possibly we can make a case for Wednesday. But but my point, without you guys can you guys can go study this on your own and and uh, come reach your own conclusion. Um, when he says it's after two days and after two days it's the Passover. So now we know if the crucifixion happened on a Friday, we know we're at like the Wednesday. If it was a Thursday, then we think Tuesday. A lot of scholars will say that they think this is Tuesday, or it could possibly be Monday. It's but but we know. <laughs> It's two days before the crucifixion, the day of the week. We're not, well, there's some discussion. We'll just say it's Friday because that's how we all roll for Good Friday. Um, So he says in two days, the Passover's coming. The Passover was to celebrate Exodus chapter 12. Remember the people of Israel, they were in captivity down in Egypt. Um, This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible because of my, my daughter, Grace, who's now 11. But when she was about a year old. It was one of her favorite stories. It was one of the first stories when we did a little Q&A with her. We could always, when we, when we say, hey, what did Moses say to Pharaoh? She say, let my people go. And she'd kind of like hold her fist up. And it became my favorite story one day when she decided to play hide and seek with us without telling us that she's playing hide and seek. And so we're, like, running around the house kind of panicking, going, oh, no, we lost our first and only child. Like, what, what are we going to do? Grace, grace, come out, come out. And then somewhere along the line in our panic, we thought, let's, let's go around and ask the question, what did Moses say to Pharaoh? So we're going around the house, what did Moses say to Pharaoh? And eventually we got to a room and buried into a closet. We hear this, let my people go. And we're like, you got it, honey, we found her. So it's that story of of Moses going to Pharaoh. All of the plagues came. Finally, the last and the most catastrophic plague came. Moses said, God said, if you want to spare your firstborn son, slaughter a lamb, put some blood on the doorpost, and when the angel of death comes, he'll pass over and spare the children. So the Jews did this, but the Egyptians did not. And by the end of this plague, Pharaoh said, you guys just get out of here. Um, Leave, go back. And so they departed to the land. Passover, there's three holidays that are celebrated, um, three big ones in the Jewish faith. Um, And in in Jerusalem, there are three major ones that were basically compulsory that you were obligated to go. Uh, Passover was the biggest of all of them. 50 days after Passover, you have Pentecost, And then in the fall, you'd have the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. And so during this time, when Jesus says it's two days from the Passover, we need to understand the intensity of Jerusalem during this time. This this was a small town really for most of the year. But Josephus tells us that around the crucifixion of Christ, it's estimated that 256,000 lambs were slaughtered this Passover, and even more fascinating that they slaughtered them within a two-hour window, which tells you that the amount of priests that were there in order to do this um, it's crazy. Two hundred and fifty-six. I don't think I could do one in an hour. Like I mean, or two. Uh, never done it before, so I have to watch a YouTube video and then I'd figure it out, and I could, pr- like, I could probably get her done in a day, like, you know, and it wouldn't be pretty, but that's not here nor there. Um, But 256,000 lambs slaughtered in a two-hour window. By the math of of that, number-wise, Josephus believes that during the time of Passover, the city of Jerusalem swelled to 2.5 million people, like just an astronomical number. So Jesus is He's finished with the Olivet Discourse. Hey, guys, the, the the Passover's coming in two days. We have some preparations we need to make. We need to sort of get going on this. I think they understood that. Then there's the and. And I don't think that they understood this. And he says, hey, guys, the Passover's coming. But Jesus understood that ultimately he is the Passover he is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Passover, that, that Jesus went to the cross, that he gave his life. He was the ultimate lamb that was slaughtered. And he says, and the son of man is to be handed over for crucifixion. This is the fourth time in the gospel of Matthew that Matthew has said that Jesus foretold of his death, burial, and resurrection. This is powerful. All of this was a part of God's plan. Uh, the, the disciples, I don't think, would understand what was. They they didn't understand what was happening. Why would Jesus go to be crucified? This was a this was the Roman form of execution reserved for the most heinous of criminals. Like I was raised in the Catholic Church, so I'm used to seeing the little crucifix, and I always knew that they always like drew a little cloth around his loin. But that's just to keep it appropriate in church. But the reality was that Jesus was probably stripped naked. We're told that his flesh was ripped from his body from the beatings. That he had to carry the cross beam of his cross to the outer part of town. And that the criminals would basically be nailed to it and hung there. And they would die a slow death that could last days in our story that we're going to focus on for the next few months, it was sped up because for religious reasons. It's a holiday, guys. It's Easter. We've got to kind of get going here. So let's kill these guys and move on with our holiday. But, but normally they would be up there for a long time. They could communicate, and you could communicate to them, and it was just disgraceful. And here the Son of God, who had never done anything wrong, had never committed any sin, He's telling his disciples that he's going to be crucified. I'm not sure that they would have understood this. Then this story, if we were watching a movie, um, remember the story sort of unfolds. Matthew chapter 23, if you were to turn over there, um, just to follow our one scene before we shift scenes, I want to get our minds back in place here. We go through the gospel very slowly, but these things are unfolding in real time very quickly. So this same day earlier, prior to, uh, in the map behind me, we have the temple. In the temple, this is a huge area, like 25, my memory is right, I think it was like 25 um, 25 football fields. But the word is acres. It's huge. I was thinking yards. I'm like, it's not 25 yards. It's 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 massive, and the courtyard is packed. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus effectively signed his death warrant. In verse one, it opens up. Jesus spoke to the crowds. Remember, 2.5 million people. I have no idea the capacity of 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 the temple, but thousands upon thousands of people. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. He then continues to say, They do things to be seen by men. If you work your way down, verse 13, you read, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He challenges them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight times in this passage. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He challenges them all in front of everybody. At the end of chapter 23, he basically leaves and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This place is going to be destroyed. He goes out. The disciples are like, Jesus, but look at these buildings. They're beautiful. What are you talking about? They meander their way down into the Kedron Valley. I think they probably came out of the south door there, or the south gate, made their way up to the Mount of Olives. Then they sit down on the top of the Mount of Olives, look across to the Temple Mount area, and they ask him a question. When are these things going to happen? When are you going to come? When's the temple going to be destroyed? When will the kingdom be established? And then Jesus answers that question through the Sermon on the Mount, which goes through chapter 24, chapter 25, which we've spent weeks going through. And now we come to chapter 26. He's done with the sermon. He says he'd finished the words. He said to his disciples, now for two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. So that's our story, how it flows there. Now, following the other vein of thought was those religious leaders that he just finished scolding. If this was a movie, like I began to say earlier, our focus would shift over to that story. We're shifting over to those religious leaders. In verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. And so our third observation here, or maybe our fourth, it depends on how you want to split up that second one, is we have the Passover plot. We see that the the chief priests, the elders of the people, all of the people who are at the courtyard, They'd made their way over to the high priest, who's Caiaphas, who we'll probably look at over the next few months. Um, he he was the head of uh, of the Sanhedrin, the the head of the Jewish people as far as uh, priestly d- duties go. But in reality, he was a Roman puppet, like he was controlled by Rome. And so they go over to his house. They now have a plan. They're going to kill Jesus. Um, they desire to hold off until after the Passover because uh, uh, the Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome, Rome ruled with an iron fist. There was freedom of religion, but but if there was to be sort of any sort of insurrection or uprising, they would come down with an iron fist to crucifixion and deal with the problem. And so while there was freedom, there was also fear that they didn't want to they didn't want to sort of disrupt things. They knew that Jesus was well loved and well respected by many of the people. Uh the, the the people were following him and listening to him. The, they, Jesus was in effect robbing the base of people from from the synagogue or from the temple. So they said, We're gonna kill him, we're gonna get rid of him. But let's do this after the Passover. Because if we do it during the Passover, a riot could come about. And if a riot comes about, then we're going to get in trouble. Uh, Caiaphas certainly didn't want, like, he didn't want to get in trouble with Rome. The whole thing would come together much faster. They didn't anticipate that there would be a defector amongst Jesus' ranks. The story, really, but without getting too far ahead, we're trying to figure out how to explain this. From verse 5, truly, chronologically, we would go to verse 14, which says, then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to, to you? So I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but chronology-wise, cr- chronologically speaking, we move from this, they're plotting. All of a sudden, there's a little, hey guys, hey, you're with Jesus. Yeah, I'm actually one of the 12 and... uh. I'm here to bargain. What are you guys willing to offer me if I betray him? I'm I'm happy to defect, but I need to know what you guys are willing to offer. And their price really was low. Like, like I think it's easy for us to think, oh, to betray Jesus, it had to have been a lot. The 30 pieces of silver was nothing. Um, The whole execution of Christ would go down right on the Passover. See, what they didn't realize is they thought they were in control of things. They thought they were going to execute Jesus because they wanted him dead. But the scriptures make it clear that Jesus's life wasn't taken. It was given. That he had this plan all, of along, all along. From the time that he walked into Jerusalem or when he rode in on the colt. Daniel prophesied that to the day. This plan was set in motion back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 that the father had a plan to reconcile people to him, us to him. And so why they thought they were going to sort of push it off to Passover, God was working and God's ultimate lamb was going to go to the slaughter to bring reconciliation to the world. And wedged between this story is the story of this woman, Mary, who breaks a, a glass of perfume on Jesus's head, really his whole body down to his feet. And it's very interesting because the story doesn't fit here chronologically. Matthew is not writing this to us in chronological order. Matthew has a purpose in mind. Matthew now transitioned. His focus is on the death of Christ, his execution. And so for him, that story begins with the story of Mary anointing Jesus's body for burial. He inserts it. Between the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, it's it, it, we should feel this great tug-of-war in this story. Um, it, it's almost like a sandwich. The betrayal is the bread. And there, during the first service, I had ham in my mind, but I don't think it's appropriate probably to use ham when we're talking about the Passover. So I opted for roast beef because I think that might be kosher. But but so in the midst of this, this story that's sandwiched by betrayal, I mean, a betrayal of the worst kind. There's this love story that actually happened. Oh, now I'm confused. Let's just say it happened on the Saturday prior, whatever day we're dealing with. If we're on Tuesday or Wednesday, this happened on Saturday. This was the Saturday prior to the triumphal entry when Jesus wrote the cult into town. We know this because John he expands upon this story, and I'll reference it without going there. In John chapter 12, the first eight verses, John tells this story in great detail. He's, he's of Matthew, Mark, and John who tell the story of this woman. In all of their accounts, John is the only one who places a timestamp stamp on this event. I don't believe that Matthew, his intention is a timestamp. stamp. Now, notice what it says in verse six. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, like if you understand the context and the dating of things, it's right there. Like now when Jesus was in Bethany, he's going, hey, let's rewind the tape a little bit. Remember that incident when Jesus was there. Oh, uh, Now that we bring up Bethany on this map behind me, it's, it's probably not that clear for you all. Um, you can see the red box. And in that red box, or the, the, the uh, rectangle-ish, that is the temple. Um, there's a little white line that runs uh, south to north. That's the Kedron Valley. Um, on the other side is the Mount of Olives. You can easily see the temple there. Um, and then we have Bethany over here. D- down here on the right is a one-mile uh, sort of distance line. And so from the temple to Beth- Bethany is about two miles. So it's really close um, okay, verse six, so now, when Jesus was in Bethany, the home of Simon the leper, we don't know much about Simon the leper, begs a whole lot of questions um, Is this guy actually a leper if he has leprosy, which is a disease that sort of like eats away your hands i've I've learned this it's a it's kind of offensive. It's called the Hansen's disease, which is my last name, <laughs> so I think they spell it the other way, though. So, um, um, so it would it would just eat away your body. I mean, it was it was terrible. Um, I think in India there are still leper colonies. It's super super contagious. And and so we're told that we're now in the home of Simon the leper most people don't think he had leprosy because if he had leprosy, Jesus would be violating a Levitical law. And we know that Jesus lived under the law, obeyed the law, fulfilled the law totally and completely. So most people believe that this Simon was cured of leprosy. It's total speculation, but I think you could make a case or like, to assume that this Simon was cured of his leprosy by Jesus. I don't think that's too far of a statement to go. And and the, the the contrast sort of begins to build. So on the one side of the coin, we have Caiaphas, his courtyard, his mansion. This guy, Rome was in his pockets big time, giving him all kinds of money. He had wealth, power, authority, huge mansion. His his house can handle all of the high priests, all of the elders, all of the people who are fed up with Jesus. Now we're over at Simon the leper's house with the Messiah. Um, Thinking about the culture, this is like if this guy was cured, it's like he had the label of, of, of leprosy for his whole life. Imagine if you got a flu five years ago, and then for the rest of your life, you're known as, that's Gunner, he's the guy who had the flu. Or if I lost my arm and say, oh, that's Gunnar, the guy with one arm. Like forever, like some of these cultures around the world, they're just really blunt. So this Simon, I don't know if he had evidence, scars, wounds, probably from his leprosy, but forever he's known as Simon the leper. He could have been deemed clean. He likely was deemed clean. But still, there's a little bit of, that's Simon the leper's house. I don't really want to go there. And yet Jesus and all the disciples, total stark contrast. The, the priest and the religious leaders, they're plotting in darkness to privately seize Jesus by stealth. Jesus is teaching publicly and in the open and reaching out to all. Nothing is done in darkness with him. And now a woman enters the story. Matthew says very little. He he strips away a bunch of the details that he doesn't think are needed for his telling of the story. We're introduced to a woman. She came, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. That's all Matthew says. If you were to go to John's account, you would see more of... Uh, the picture of of the crowd. Uh, we know that this woman is Mary, connected to Mary and Martha in the other story. Um, Martha's busy working behind the scenes. Um, in this whole story, I really don't relate to to, to Mary at all, like in, in the whole account of her life. Um, like I really identify with Martha. Like if, if I wasn't a pastor and didn't have to be up here in the front and talking, but... Like, I think it's because I'm, like, more of an introvert. Like, people are, like, I, I I can do this, but you guys all become just one person to me. But in my heart of hearts, if there was, like, a church function and I wasn't the pastor and I didn't have to be up here speaking, like, I would be the guy, like, making sure there was coffee. Like, hey, let's get the trash taken care of. Let's make sure there's toilet paper in the, the bathrooms. And I, I want to be, like, I want to do the behind-the-scenes stuff and just sort of be more of a recluse. But when you're that kind of person, like Martha, you tend to get like more frustrated with people who are not concerned about these things that are important, like the chairs being straightened out for her and stuff, you know. Like, but Matthew doesn't talk about Martha. Um, John tells us that that she came, and it was like when she shattered this vial of perfume. Matthew says on his head, Jesus talks about anointing his body. By the end, in John, she's on her feet, lets her hair down, which would have been scandalous. And she is like trying to wipe off the perfume from his, his feet. I, I, like it's, it's emotional trying to imagine the scene. I don't know if she meant to like just anoint his head with oil, but as she broke the thing and it just got everywhere, then she's immediately trying to to, to clean up her, her mess and the emotion of the whole thing is is, is overwhelming. Try, trying to, like putting myself in this story, I don't identify with her. Jesus is far too gracious for me to identify with him because I'm thinking if I'm in this room and some lady just broke a whole vial of oil uh, cologne over me I would be furious like how many showers would it take to get the smell off of you if I was to decide like literally if I was up here and I had a bottle of cologne and I just gave three squirts across the room I wonder how many people would have to get up and leave I don't want to call anybody out but I'm guessing that there'd be a number but let alone taking a whole bottle breaking it and throw it on Larry, you know, because he's the good target. (laughs) Bob's already like, ah, it's too close to me. But can you imagine the stench in the room? John lets us know. Matthew just says that that this vial was really expensive. John lets us know very clearly that this was a year's wages that it was so expensive that if you wanted to pay for it, it would be a year's wage. And I don't want to do the math. Like, just imagine, how much do you make in a given month? Uh, Even after taxes. Like, I don't care. Just imagine what you make on a month, times it by 12. That's the value of this bottle. So she breaks it on his head, and the disciples, were told, become indignant when they saw this. They're furious. It, um... But as we go through the story, when Jesus responds, we're told that Jesus was aware of what they were saying. So I think that they were speaking, but I almost get the idea that they're sort of murmuring behind Jesus' back. Like they don't, like they know, like, or maybe Jesus is dealing with like, I don't know, stuff in his eyes. I don't know what's happening, but but like maybe they thought there was enough distraction that they could talk and have a conversation without Jesus knowing. And they're furious and they, their first thing that they say is, why this waste? And right away, their question sort of strikes me is, who owned this bottle of perfume? Mary. I'm trying to think of something I care about. I really like orange juice. I really like beef jerky. Those are the two things that come to my mind. But if you have a gallon of orange juice, and you walk to the kitchen right now, and you dump it down your sink, or the sink, I would probably get kind of, like, upset. Like, you're wasting the orange juice. But if it's your orange juice, you could do whatever you want with your orange juice. If you have a thing of beef jerky, and you just want to ram it down the garbage disposal, like, I'd be like, ah, that's a total waste. Give it to me. I'll eat it. But if it's not mine, I have no say over it. This bottle of perfume was not there. She she can do whatever she wants with it. But it's fascinating to me how we become such good judges of how other people should be managing the resources that God has entrusted to them. And if you begin by stepping out and, and giving and to see like, hey, what do you think about this? When you meet with your tax preparer at the end of the year, oh, I tithe and I give. And he's like, well, you you could be doing much better if you invested that stuff. Like others can have opinions about how you use your resources. They go on and they make themselves, they're a little pious. They actually, John tells us that Judas Iscariot was leading this discussion. Matthew kind of puts all of them together. He says, well, this perfume might have been sold, but basically it wasn't theirs to sell. But they're saying if it was theirs, they would have sold it. And then the proceeds, a year salary, I don't know how, like, whatever number you want to plug in there. What they're saying was if she gave the perfume to them and they sold it, they wouldn't have even used that money for their own resources. They would have used it to basically give it to the poor, those in need, because that's a gracious thing to say. So they're kind of using their religiousness to sort of look down on this girl who is worshiping the Lord with her resources, but they're saying, oh, she could have worshiped him so much better. The whole thing is really convicting. Because like, I've told you who I identify, the, the disciples, Like, I, I, I identify with them. I'm all about frugality. I'm all about stuff. And I start seeing how, how Jesus is going to challenge them by what she has done. You know, t- today we we um, we prayed for Lindsey Gray, and when, when we give and we support, and I encourage you that, like you know, to 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 go. There's something about this last trip to Africa. Like here, I you know took the two guys, you know, Daniel and John. They needed my escort. Debbie hasn't let him go. <laughs> that that the two guys needed an escort to go there, and then we have sent teams of girls to the Philippines and now to Japan with no male escort to like keep them safe. So she's letting them like have it. It's super funny, but then to get to Africa on that first night and to see Joe and to say, "Hey Joe, what do I need tomorrow? How much money do we need for like getting a burger?" He said, "Well, there's no burgers in Nairobi," like, like. But I'm like, what do I need to get through tomorrow? Like, my passport? He's like, I don't want you to have your passport. I want you to have a copy of your passport. No wedding ring, no computer, no money, nothing. Have your cell phone for an emergency, but if it's taken, you can replace a cell phone. If we're hijacked in the car, don't resist. (laughs) Like, like, (laughs) Like, what did you guys get me into? And then to go there, and then, like, they, like Larry sold me out about this, like, to see Lindsay. Like, this 26-year-old girl is flying a plane into combat regions in Sudan where there's war breaking out, where they're evacuating people, but the thing that, like, it's, it doesn't strike me that she's doing it. That doesn't bother me now at this stage of my life. What bothers me is, especially when she visited and her parents came, that her parents have two little girls, and and they're just like, Lord, if you want to take my daughters to to use them overseas, so be it. Oh, and I'm and I'm looking at this story, saying, Lord, whatever I have, you can have it. Like it's really hard for me to do this, and my inclination is to sort of like, I can be there in one moment and say, Lord, everything I have is yours. And then a couple of days later, I kind of, it's really easy to kind of start worshiping the stuff that he's blessed me with. And I look at the story and say, could I write a check for one year of my salary to something that he has asked me to? Now, I don't think he's actually asked me to do that. So as I argue with myself in my head, I'm like, well, I don't think God's calling me to do that, which I don't think he's calling me to do that, but maybe that's just my flesh kind of like... But the, the issue isn't whether I do or I don't. The issue is, am I willing? Everything that I have is his. And, and he wants us to go through life with our arms open and willing, and, and he might not like God's like really gracious like he's like not real. He is super gracious. Amen. God has blessed me like far more than I could have ever, ever, ever asked for. And I'm not even going to talk about what I deserve because I probably deserve prison. And so Jesus then looks at the disciples as they're talking about how much better they could have managed the resources that were trusted. Verse 10, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother this woman? I love how he just protects, like, why are you guys harassing her? Like, what she's done is a good thing to me. And before he goes on to the purpose of 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 what she has done that is so good. He's sort of going to address their whole little what I think is probably a false statement on their part. Oh, if we had that, we would have sold it. We would have run immediately, gone down to local Salvation Army, and we would have just cooked up lunch for the next year, taking care of people and doing all of this stuff. And Jesus says to them, and he quotes actually from from Deuteronomy fifteen eleven, and he says he doesn't really quote, but he speaks it um, for you will always have the poor with you but you do not always have me now first off just to sort of say this verse as it's very easy to misuse this verse to say oh you see a homeless person you see a need and they say, well, Jesus said we're always gonna have the homeless. Don't even worry about it. You're not always him. <laughs> so, like, we can very easily become callous and not be compassionate and 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 generous. This verse is is not being given as a uh, get out of jail card so that you don't have to be compassionate to those in need. That's not at all what he's saying. For just in a you know in Matthew 25:35 section from last week, Jesus told them. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. I think of James who says, I think it's James one twenty-seven that says, undefiled religion is this, to, to care for the widows and the orphans. Like, this is what God wants of us. Also in James, he says, if you see your brother in need and you say, go and be blessed and you have the means to take care of them, to help them, you're really not a brother at all. So Jesus isn't saying this to say, hey, we as followers of of Christ, we have an exemption from helping others. That's not at all. but, But what he's saying to them is, guys, you're sitting with the Messiah It's the week of Passover, and this is going to be a Passover like no other because I am the Passover. I am going to my death. I am giving everything. And what she just did was, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 12, for when she poured out this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. He's been telling them all along that he is going to give his life as a ransom for many, that he was going to make the ultimate sacrifice. He continues and he says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. So he references the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is... According to First Corinthians 15, that Jesus was executed according to Scripture, that it was prophesied that he would give his life. The reason he gave his life was as a penalt- payment for our sins. The sins of all humanity were placed upon him. He was able to absorb the weight of all of the consequence due sin- from sin so that we could look to him and simply believe and be restored. He took our sin in whole, not in part, as that old hymn goes. And he says that as this gospel goes out, her name will always be mentioned. Beautiful. In this story, there are three people that history will not allow to be forgotten. There's Mary. I think everybody here probably knows a Mary in their life, right? Anybody not met a Mary? Like, Mary's a pretty common name how many of you have met Judas? (laughs) I've never met a Judas or even heard about a Judas. Judas is not forgotten. And Jesus, his name is known worldwide. And he says that every time the gospel, the story of Jesus goes out, her name will be mentioned. And then in verse 14, Matthew transitions back to real time in the telling of his story, back to the the Passovers in two days. He told the story, but the story happened four days prior. Then one of the twelve, I think that there's emphasis here. Like, of the inner twelve, of these twelve guys, these guys who saw Jesus live, who heard Jesus speak, who were touched by him, who saw bread multiplied multiple times, saw people raised from the dead, seen Lepers cured. These guys that were in his innermost circle who saw everything that he did. One of those. One of those turned on him. Judas is scared. He goes to the chief priest and he says, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? Now, the story always reminds me there's, there's, a, there's a missionary, Don um, Richardson. He wrote a book called Peace Child. Highly recommend the book. There might even be a movie, um, but but the book is great. So in in the '60s, uh, Don and his wife went to New Guinea to reach these tribal people that were like like way way out there, like their language wasn't in writing or anything like that. They were cannibals, and so it was a really a, a dangerous sort of mission that they had. And so they go there. They spend years with them. They get to the point. Where they can start sharing the story of the gospel with the people, they, they're, go, they're like I think I forget the timeline, but I feel like a year or so had gone along in the telling of the gospel, and they get right to this point. And when they read this verse, when they talk about Judas, the people erupt. And they start shouting Judas's name. They begin worshiping Judas. And the missionaries are like, oh, no, we've given our lives to come here. And we have just created followers of Judas. And they came to understand that this tribe or this tribal group of people, the, the greatest and most esteemed value was treachery, betrayal, uh, th- there was no greater honor that if you could go and befriend somebody for years, fatten him up, become his best friend, and then take his life and barbecue him for your village. <laughs> like, that was the greatest thing that could possibly happen. And so they get to the story and the whole crowd erupts because Judas is a hero in their minds. Who would have thought, like, f- for all of us, you know, the rhetorical question is, like, have you ever been betrayed by somebody? Like, th- there is, like, no worse feeling to be betrayed. And then the deeper that relationship goes, the closer that individual is to you, the betrayal only gets more painful. And so most of us are not like that tribal people. Now, the tribal people, they eventually came to Christ. Super powerful story that fits with communion. Communion is after they'd blown it and led all of these people to Judas, and they're trying to sort of pick up the pieces, they continued to live amongst the people. And they realized that for the two tribes that, w- that were eating each other and killing each other through all of this stuff, they came to learn about this thing called the peace child. And, and it's a cliffhanger, guys, or not a cliffhanger. This is a spoiler alert if you're going to go read the book. Um, They realized that the chief of one tribe and the chief of the other tribe that were warring with one another, if they wanted to make peace with one another, what they would do is the chief would have a child. He would not give birth, but he would create a child. And then he would take the newborn baby and he would meet with the other chief who had done the same thing. And then they would give their children, their sons, to the other tribe. And that's how they would make peace with one another. And through that, they were able to then tell the story of Jesus, who is the ultimate peace child. But that that's what Jesus did. And so back to our story in verse 15, as we sort of get towards the end here. So he goes and he says, how much to betray Jesus? They say 30 pieces of s- silver. And we're told that he went to go look for it. Now, the other contrast is you have this years worth of salary of vial of perfume that was poured upon this woman. That's in stark contrast to 30 p- 30 pieces of silver was nothing. Like it was, it was it was it was Judas didn't betray Jesus for the money. I believe that Judas betrayed Jesus because he didn't like this whole word the Messiah was going this talk of the crucifixion. The If you want to follow me, then you need to surrender all, which I knew what the message was today. So we're singing that song, I surrender all. I'm like, oh, Lord, like I want to sing it. But like, may I not be guilty of singing, I surrender all, but you're not getting much from me. So 30 pieces of silver, I, I don't think that Judas liked what Jesus was telling him to do. That if you want to be the greatest, you need to be the least. And I think Jesus or Judas was looking for a step up. He goes over to the high priest. Hey, you guys are looking for Jesus. I'm on the inner 12. Make an offer. Anything. I'm ready to sort of turn him over to you. And I'm thinking that he's thinking that if he surrenders Jesus, I don't think he thought that they were going to kill him. Because when they do arrest him and he realizes, suddenly he has remorse, not repentance. He goes and he throws the money away and he goes and he hangs himself with no evidence. The scripture makes it clear that he did not come to trust in Christ, even though Christ would have totally forgiven him for the ultimate act of betrayal. I just don't think he liked the direction that Jesus was going. I don't think he liked that Jesus was telling him to live this way and and before we start throwing stones at Judas, I think we need to examine our own lives and what parts are we holding back from Christ? If he is Lord, he's Lord over all. So when I look at the story and I look at Judas and I see this like guy who was so close to, to a group of church people, there's a warning here to us. Like you can be close to the kingdom but not in relationship with the king. And so communion today, as we take communion, this is the jugular vein of Christianity. And if you're not certain about where you stand, I want to make it really clear. that There are two categories of people. There are those who have rejected Christ. There are those who have rejected Christ who can, hopefully not in our Sunday school, but they teach in Sunday school. They go to church. They read their Bible. They do all their stuff. They can do all of the motions. They can look just like a disciple, but they're not truly a disciple. When you hear the gospel that Jesus died for you, it's an, it's about responding, believing, trusting. Yes, Lord, I believe that you did that for me. And we're told that at that moment, the spirit of God seals us, that we're baptized by the spirit. Then we have this picture of Mary, who she understood who she was. Like, I don't know where you've been in your life, but I hope that each one of us in this room has reached the place of feeling like super insignificant, that you've reached a place where you're super disgusted with yourself and your sin and the mess you've made of things. Like, like, I don't ever want to forget where I was when I came to Christ because my life was a total and complete disaster. By the world standards, I was doing great. I was a Navy SEAL. I was at the top of the world. I was doing amazing things. But in my heart, I was a wretched, wretched sinner. And I knew that God would have nothing to do with me. And I was hopeless. And I think that there's a place that all of us, if you're a Christian, you have to have had that moment where you realized how vile your sin was and how holy God is in this great divide. And Mary understood. She recognized that breaking this vial over Jesus's body Although it was a year's salary, that wasn't a sacrifice at all for her in light of what he was about to do for her. like Jesus understood clearly he was heading to the cross. Today we take communion. We have a cracker and a little juice. They're symbolic. And when we take communion, what we're forced to do is we're forced to evaluate how are we doing with God? And if you're not a Christian, well, communion is not really for you, but to become a Christian is really easy. That's saying, I believe. And so for the non-Christian, you're presented with the gospel that Jesus' body was broken for you. And it's just about belief. There's nothing for you to do other than believe, to trust in his work, that it was sufficient for you. For those of us who are Christians and are taking communion, it's a time for us to reflect inwardly on our lives so I said, Lord, what areas am I holding back? What areas, what sin is in my life? It's a time for us to confess. But we should only glance at our sin and we need to gaze into the eyes of Christ. And as we gaze into his eyes, we're reminded that the body or the cracker is it's symbolic of his broken body, that he went through this for us. His blood is the new covenant, that he, his death on the cross was sufficient. And finally, as we take communion, it's our time to be reminded that we've been given this commission to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So four guys are gonna come up. We're gonna I'm gonna pray and we're gonna distribute the elements. Uh, But as the elements are going out, I just ask you to bow your head um, and just to sort of reflect areas of your life. Maybe you've never trusted in Christ, and you just need to simply believe. For those of us who have trusted but haven't, those of us who have trusted but we have sin in our lives, it's a time for us to sort of um, to confess. The Bible makes it very clear that as you confess your sins, He's faithful and He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And I'd also ask you to ask God to sort of, who are the neighbors, friends, people in your life that you don't, you know, don't know Jesus that you can be an agent for Him to share the gospel with. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to distribute the elements. Father, we do thank you for the story, this great story of love and betrayal wrapped into one. Father, we thank you that you sent your son as the ultimate peace child for us. Help us to understand in greater detail, greater clarity, that the callousness of our hearts would be lifted to fill the weight of the suffering and the anguish and the sacrifice that you made on our behalves. Fathers, we prepare to take communion today. I ask that you would, Lord, for those of us that don't know you as Savior, I pray that you would help them to understand that this is a gift. It wasn't free and it wasn't cheap, but it's the ultimate gift that could ever be given. And for those of us who have believed, Father, I pray that you would help us to really examine our lives. We all sing the song I surrender all. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to really examine our hearts that we would confess sin, that we would surrender to you everything that we have, for it's all yours. And it's nothing in light of what you've done for us. And so, Father, as we pray, as we reflect, bring to mind those we know that don't know you. Give us the courage to be a light to them. I pray that you would give us your love for those that we don't know that don't know you. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's good name.